this morning. My name is Jean Farrington, and I am connected here at Calvary through the women's ministry as well as the life group. And it's my privilege today to read our scripture, Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk." And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality." And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Thanks, Gene. Well, we've been in this series in the book of Revelation, specifically this section that's so full of of God's judgment for what feels like a thousand years now. Uh, and, And we're almost to the end of it. We are almost getting to what it is that this judgment leads towards, what it paves the way to, which is God with his people and the restoration of the entire world. But along the way, we've been looking at God's judgment through a couple different lenses. So we've looked about how uh, God, who's so good and pure and majestic and holy, he has every right to say what is right and wrong and to hold people accountable for right and wrongdoing. We also looked at another lens where because God is just in his judgment, he is bringing about justice to a broken world. But in chapter 17, I think we have a slightly different lens through which to see God's judgment. And it all comes down to this question. Who keeps their promises? Who is it that is actually able to do what they say they can do? Is it Jesus or is it these worldly powers? I mean, think about it like this. How much do you trust someone who never tells you the truth? How much do you rely on someone who never follows through? I mean, they could tell you exactly what you want to hear. They, they know how to butter us up. They know how to stroke our ego. They can make these incredible promises. But if we know that they lie, if we know that they can't be relied on, that, that's not something that we're going to put our trust in. That's not the basis of, of a good relationship. That's not the foundation of a friendship. And I ask these questions because I think the lens through which we see God's judgment in Revelation chapter 17 is very similar to that. Yes, God is just to judge. Yes, he is bringing restoration to a broken world. But we also see that in his his actions, in his judgment, that God is actually helping prevent something that is actively looking to hurt people. 
I mean, it's not just that the, the different ways to try to find fulfillment and hope and identity and plans and future. It's not just that those things are wrong because they're, uh, they're opposed to God, which they're wrong because they're opposed to God. That is true. But they're wrong because they don't actually keep their promises. They're actively harmful to people. And we see this lens of who keeps their promises in this chapter through this image that's given to us of a woman, or more specifically, she's called a prostitute. And let me just say right from the very beginning that chapter 17 is probably the most difficult chapter in this very difficult book to understand. Now, I know I've said that previously about other chapters, but I've changed my mind. It's now this one. (laughs) And the reason for that is the language is is not only difficult to, to read, like that, what was just read for us, that, that's a hard thing to hear. But also the details that are found throughout are really difficult to understand. What is this pointing to? What is the purpose of this? And if we're struggling with this chapter, I, I think we're in good company. Because as was just read for us, John sees all that's going on and it says he marvels greatly. Another way to put that is he's astonished. He, he's confused. He's flabbergasted. And so if we're struggling to understand what's going on, I think we're in good company here. Says John is struggling with that as well. But this image that's used is of this alluring woman. She's she's also, though, called a city. So she's the the mother of all prostitutes, but she's also called Babylon the Great. So we're going to spend some time breaking down those two images, prostitutes and Babylon. It's going to be a really fun morning. I was trying to think uh, this past week, who has it worst? Is it parents who are sitting next to their students, like, ah, as we're talking about all this stuff, that's, that's awkward. Or is it students who are sitting next to their parents as we're talking about prostitutes? I don't know. You guys can figure it out later. But uh, prostitutes, or at least the image of prostitutes, shows up all the time in the Old Testament. And it's often used of this image to talk about unfaithfulness, specifically unfaithfulness to God. And it's used to describe entire nations whole people groups who have turned away from God for, with their worship, their allegiance, their affection, their all. And so while it could include a literal sexual immorality, it's most, mostly more broad than that. It talks about unfaithfulness to God. And it goes a little bit further as well. It's not just that an individual is, is turning away. It's not just in someone's action that they're being unfaithful to God. This is also trying to recruit trying to encourage other people to turn away from him as well, to lead them astray, to get them to be unfaithful as well. After all, being a prostitute is rarely a solo act. And so this image is is reflected all throughout the Old Testament, probably most clearly in the book of Hosea. Hosea is called to marry a prostitute to reflect Israel's unfaithfulness to God. So as his wife, who's a prostitute, is unfaithful to him, is mirroring how Israel is being unfaithful to God. And if this language is uncomfortable, especially as we look at some other Bible translations out there, they use words probably more severe than prostitute. As we're reading this, if if this makes us a little bit uncomfortable, I, I think that's the point. I mean, calling nations, people groups, prostitutes is a very vivid artistic description. And the arts do something to us. They make us feel more than just understand definitions. They help us to to grasp, to internalize a message, not just to mentally understand what's being said. 
I, I think of uh, Lord Byron. Lord Byron was a British poet. Uh, most of his writing was the early 1800s, and he's considered to be one of the, the most prolific and famous of the romantic movement of poetry. Uh, one of his, his famous poems uh, starts this way. He's, uh, he wrote, She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. Thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gouty day denies. I mean, even if we don't like poetry, if we don't understand all that he's saying right there, th there's something that we feel when we hear something like that. There's something more powerful than if he just would have written, she looked pretty. Like, we feel something when this imagery is being used, especially evocative imagery on themes like beauty and love and sex, like the prostitute. We feel as well the power of imagery, probably best in our culture through movies. I mean, you pick any movie that there is and you could boil down the plot. You can describe it in one or two sentences. And so why do we still go to the movies then? I mean, if we just told it in one or two sentences, that would save us a lot of time, somewhere between 90 minutes and if it's a Scorsese film, three plus hours. We could save a lot of time this way and yet we still go to the movies because there's something about experiencing that story the imagery that's being used helps us to feel the message that's being said rather than just describing what's happening. So this imagery that's used of, of uh, people groups being prostitutes helps us to understand, to grasp, to feel the seriousness of sin. How significant it is to be unfaithful to the ever faithful God. To, to not just understand but to experience what this looks like more so than if we were just to say evil is bad. But the other image that we're given is of this city, Babylon. And Babylon as well shows up all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, we go way back towards the beginning, Genesis chapter 10, as this tower is attempted to be built in the city of Babel, which would eventually become Babylon. And the purpose of this tower is it's a rejection, it is a rebellion against what God has called people to do. It's this attempt to, to show what humankind can accomplish on their own. We don't need God to tell us anything, we can do this on our own. Look at our power and our might. This, this tower, this attempt of building this Tower of Babel is a picture of mankind's enmity and rebellion. Well, you jump forward uh, in, in the, the Old Testament and you get to a point where Babylon is the most powerful nation in the entire world. And they've actually conquered, they've captured and, and taken into exile God's people Israel. And, and there's this moment that's, that captures kind of the spirit of Babylon that comes from the book of Daniel. And it sounds almost like a rerun. It sounds exactly like what we heard about back when that tower was being built in Babel. This is Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 28. It says, And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Do you see the language that's being used? Is not this great Babylon that's done by my power for my glory? I mean, that's the language of a man who's been seduced. 
that he is, is so caught up in what is around him, thinking that it's from the work of his own hands rather than the God who's given us everything that we have. It's a picture of self-sufficiency, self-aggrandizement. Look at all that I have accomplished. The spirit of Babylon is this rebellion against God, this trying to find fulfillment and purpose apart from him, of thinking that we can do it all just on our own. So when we take these two images of the woman's city, of the mother of prostitutes, of Babylon the Great, and as we combine those two images together, it, it tells us that this passage, Revelation 17, is talking about some world power, some ruling force that is leading people astray from God, that is trying to set up an alternative for identity, for fulfillment, for purpose, for how they're spending their time. It is trying to point people in a direction other than God, to tempt people to turn away from him, to do it all by their own hands. So if, that, if that's what the image is talking about, the natural question that comes from it is, all right, so who's it talking about? What is the image specifically talking about? What is this woman city? What is this prostitute Babylon meaning? Well, fortunately, we are given additional details. Unfortunately, I think they might actually make it more confusing than actually helpful. So let's jump into it. Uh, Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 8. It says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Yeah, no joke. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must reign only a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. All right, at least there's one thing that we can agree on in this. So this, this woman city, this, this prostitute Babylon, is seated on, she's riding, she's in relationship with a beast. And if it sounds familiar, it's because we've seen this beast before. Revelation chapter 13, a beast comes from the water, which fits this description. And we talked about back in Revelation 13 that this beast that comes from the water is a political figure. It's a ruler. It's set up as someone who mimics the work of Jesus, who acts as an antichrist through the empowerment of Satan. And so what is, this is telling us is that this woman receives her allure, her beauty, her, her, uh, her direction in life from the person and work of Satan. I, I like how one of the, the commentators I read put it. He says that the devil lives off her immoral earnings. So what this woman city is doing is, is working through the power of Satan to lead people astray. And so that's another piece of the puzzle. We have those two images, woman, city, and now we add this piece of relationship with the beast. And it's telling us that this is some world power that is propped up by Satan working in opposition to God. And then 
Anything after that, we're just getting into guesswork. Because there are dozens. Actually, that's probably not enough. There's lots of interpretations as to who this woman city is supposed to represent. And it kind of boils down into three main camps. And the, the difficulty is all of the conclusions tend to have some difficulty in explaining it away. We just, we don't really have a nice, clean box to put this in. But there's a few different options that we could take with it. The first is the historical view. And, and there's two interpretations that come from the historical view. One is to say that this woman city represents Rome. And the reason for that is there's some Roman descriptions found throughout. So if, if I was to say uh, the Big Apple, you guys know automatically, like I'm talking about New York City. If I was to say the Windy City, that's Chicago. If I was to say Stinchville, that's Greeley. Like we know uh, what's being talked about just by those, those short descriptions. This is said that this beast has seven heads, which are seven mountains. And Rome was famous for being situated on seven mountains, seven hills. The other part is it talks about these 10 rulers that don't have full authority, and maybe that points to the fact that Rome had 10 provinces. There's details that could point that way. The other option in the historical view is to say, no, it's not just Rome. It's seven different nations that have opposed Israel throughout history. So Rome's going to be one of them, but so is Babylon and the Medo-Persians and all of these other countries leading up to these seven that oppose God's people. The other camp to try to interpret this is the, the future camp, which is to say that, yes, while Satan does work through current powers and, and entities, that there is coming a day, a future kingdom will arise that is worse than anything that's ever been seen before. And this is going to rise and lead people astray right before Jesus returns. And then finally, the, the, the third camp is uh, the symbolic uh, view, which is to say that it's not seven literal rulers or nations or anything like that, but a seven is the number of completion. It is the complete number of oppressive powers throughout history, as Satan is always using rulers and cities and nations to point people and lead people astray. Maybe one of those sounds convincing to us. Maybe we don't have a camp that we landed in. Or maybe we know that we were in Revelation 17 as we come in and we're fully set on what we think that this points to. That's great. That's all really good. Uh, regardless of where we land, we can at least come to this one shared con uh, uh, conclusion. That this is talking about uh, either a, uh, this is Satan using uh, some sort of world, uh, let me get it, Satan has is and will use future or existing power or powers opposed to God, enticing people to find fulfillment apart from him. So even if we say this is uh, pointing to one specific place in the future, we still see Satan doing this work. Even if we say that this was pointing to something that was happening in John's day, we still see Satan doing this work. And so it's, it's Satan using these powers to entice people to find their fulfillment apart from him. And this can finally get us to the lens that we're talking about God's judgment in this chapter. Who keeps their promises? Because what we see is that this woman city, this, this prostitute Babylon, uses, uh, uses this power that comes from Satan to entice people. And an enticement is a promise. It's a promise that you can find something better. It's a promise that there's, there's something more fulfilling, something more meaningful. There, there's something better to come. 
And yet what we see is that this woman's city doesn't keep her promises. And this shows up in a couple places in the chapter. First, even though she mimics the work of God, she's not able to leave something lasting and intentional and hopeful in a way that only God can. We see this theme all throughout the book of Revelation of of the work of Satan is is set up to to give an alternate. It's mimicking the work of God. And and we see that again in this chapter. So this woman city has a name written on her forehead, just like God's people do. She is adorned in jewels, just like God's city is. In Revelation chapter 21, we're told of the new Jerusalem, which is described through these precious jewels. Incidentally, that city is also personified as a woman, but a bride rather than a prostitute. We also see this, this phrase that's used all throughout this, this chapter of this beast who was, is not, and is about to rise. This is a parody of the description that we've seen of God all throughout, who was, and is, and is to come. And so even though it's, it's mocking the work of God, even though it's trying to set up this alternate to what God is doing, what God has promised his people, it falls short. See, in this chapter, in chapter 18 as well, we see her true face. We see the true face of sin, and it is repulsive. It doesn't last. It crumbles at the touch. The promises that she gives, these enticements that she calls people in, actually leads to a lack of fulfillment, a lack of purpose and direction and hope. It leads to death. I mean, and don't we see this in our world today as well? I mean, you think about the promises that come in our culture, in our society, in our world, and yet all of them lead to something that's inherently worse than what it promised it could deliver. I mean, you just look at our culture. One of, one of the hallmarks of, of who we are is, is uh, th- this, this aspect of individualism. Like, there's a positive side of it. Anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We, are, we don't need anyone else. We're not uh, dependent on anyone. We can accomplish it all on their own. But when indivi- uh, individualism just starts to run rampant, it, it becomes isolating. You get to the point where, as we're all individuals, we're all able to set our own course. We're all able to say what is right and wrong. We are all able to save what, in fact, is truth. And when the focus becomes so much so on what is your truth, when everything becomes self-defined, then there's no agreement on anything. And we see how this has spiraled out of control as so many things are being able to be self-defined by people. You think about uh, the aspect of we're, we're called to accept everyone, but that has led to the point to where if someone doesn't perfectly agree with me on everything, then they are to be rejected. Acceptance has led to rejection. You think of the escapism of alcohol that we see as it's leading to overindulgence and despair, or living just for yourself has led to crippling loneliness. The pursuit of more and more money has led to the uh, exploitation of others and the hoarding of wealth. The unfettered, undisciplined pursuit of technology has led to a breakdown of necessary social interactions. The, The 
pursuit of physical beauty as one of the highest goods that we had either leads to the outlandish spending to remain that way or self-harm when someone doesn't feel that way. Sex as a, a mere pleasure has, has led to the dehumanization of people. And it's not just our culture. You go all the way back to this be- the beginning. This fruit won't kill you, Adam and Eve, leads to a world that's so utterly marked by death. The promises are not kept. You even see this as we go back to Lord Byron. He filled his life with all the pleasure that he could find. He was essentially a rock star, which sounds weird for a poet, but uh, like he, he had people flocking to him. As he gets to the end of his life, he, he writes of this individual, which feels like a bit of self-reflection. He wrote of one who drank every cup of joy, heard every trump of fame, drank early, drank uh, deeply drank, drank drafts which common millions might have drunk, drunk enough for millions of people, then died of thirst because there is no more to drink. The promises are not kept. I mean, we see this woman with her allure, with her temptation. Look at how great things could be. Look at how incredible. And you're not shackled to to some God. You can do things on your own. You can find your own way. You can make things incredible. All of these great promises that crumble, that don't last, which fall apart. We see another reason in this chapter why these promises are not kept. Look at Revelation 17, 15. It says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. And they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purposes of being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. We see that the promises are not kept because as evil seeks to continue its path of conquering everything, it will reach a point where it will need to conquer itself. And God will always allow it to fulfill its purpose in this way. It makes me think of, of mob movies or something like that, where there's someone who uh, is a traitor or they're giving valuable and important information to the mob boss, thinking that, well, they're going to get a place in the organization or money or some sort of reward for, for their help, and yet they're carried off to go and face punishment instead. All the while, they're screaming out, but I, I helped you, I helped you. We see the, the end result of evil is that it turns in on itself, that there's no friendships here. The promise of great success and wealth and incredible things that could be accomplished just end with being devoured. The promises are not kept. But in its place, we do have another answer to that question. Who keeps their promises? And we see this in Revelation 17, 14. It says, and they will make war on the Lamb, And the lamb will conquer them. 
for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. How do we know that what God has for us is better than anything else? Well, he is Lord of lords and king of kings. How do we know that we can make it in this life, that we can, we can survive when there's so many temptations to look elsewhere? Well, he is Lord of lords and king of kings. How do we know that he will protect his people, that they won't be enticed or carried away? Well, he is Lord of lords and king of kings. He is the always victorious Lord. And the people who are with him are always with him. Those who are chosen and called and faithful. What do we do with this very difficult chapter to understand? Well, remember what one of the reasons why Revelation is written. It is written to the church to see what is happening and what will happen so that we can be faithful, to live faithfully for him now until the day that we see the Lord of Lords and King of Kings face to face. And so as we read this chapter, it's so full of things to keep our mind on, so things to, uh, full of things that are warnings for us, things for us to remember as we live our lives now, how we can be faithful, how we can live out of being called and chosen and faithful. And the first thing that we're given is we have this warning, this thing that we are called to remember, and we are called to remember the seductive nature of evil. The seductive nature of evil. That this image that's given to us that is hard to read about, this prostitute who is tempting, who's alluring, who's making these promises, the, the image is, is, is done this way. It's so evocative so that it shakes us awake, that it reminds us of how tempting and alluring things could be in this world. That the, the powers of this world are calling for us to put our temptation into other things. And it's less drastic at times than seeing a woman riding a beast. Normally, it's just subtle as it's seeping into our lives. It's this reminder how easy it is for us to be enticed as well. And we might not even realize it until we see it start to work out into our lives. What is it that we're spending our time on? What are we spending our money on, our energy, our efforts? What are the things that we laugh at? What are the things that we say are valuable now? And it starts to shape how we make decisions, how we understand things. It's that subtle, seductive nature of evil. In a chapter that's so difficult to understand, it is enormously practical because it's the reminder of what is happening and what will happen. It's the reminder to be shaken awake by the reality of what God is doing and the reality of what Satan is doing. It is enormously practical as it's this warning to not be seduced. Second thing, we are to remember that evil is individual. And yet it's also in everything that those individuals make and produce and touch. It is systemic. Now, uh, what, we, what we see, the, the image that's given to us is of Satan using world powers, using systems that exist for the purpose of its work. 
And, and so while we might be comfortable with, with saying, yeah, there's, there's individuals that, that are evil, we, we could probably point to some in history. Like we shouldn't squirm at the thought of, uh, do I feel comfortable saying Hitler was evil? Yes, we can, we can safely do that. Uh, we also might come to grips with our individual sin nature that we have. Like I know where I fall short. But what happens when those individuals create and produce things is they carry their sin with them into that. And so what we would say is not everything in this world is sinful, but everything is full of sin. Do we see that distinction? So not everything is explicitly said by God, do this or don't do this. So not everything is sinful. And yet as people full of sin, no matter where we go, we take that sin with us. Everything is full of sin. And this might be easy for us to point to groups and powers and, and establishments that we disagree with. They're like, yeah, yeah, we see how full of sin that they could be, but this isn't going to include everything. Even places that we might identify with, groups that we are proud members of. This country that we are so blessed to live in is a place that's full of sin. The, the political party that we are part of is a place that's full of sin. This church as an organization is a place that's full of sin. We exclusively hire humans as, on our staff. And every single one of those humans is full of sin. And so this warning is given to us to not attach our hopes on anything else but Jesus because we see the end results of what that leads to. Promises broken. Evil devouring itself. The final thing that we're called to remember is to remember that we cannot overcome on our own. That our preservation, our future, as well as our presence right now, is tied to the certainty of the one who keeps his promises. So no matter how awful things become on this world, and the promise that we are given is things will continue to be awful in this world. No matter how difficult it is to remain faithful, to not give in to the enticement of what's, what's, uh, we're being called to put our allegiance to other than him, we remember the promises of the only, the only faithful one, this lamb, this Jesus, who assures us of who we are. So we are called and chosen and faithful. We aren't those things because we tried really, really hard. We aren't those things because we seem to get lucky while other people didn't. Like, like things could have gone a different way. Like, yeah, really, really lucked out on that one. That's how I made it to the end. No, no, that's Babylon talk. We are called and chosen and faithful because every day, no matter what we're facing, we know who our Lord is. And that's the Lord of Lords. We know who our King is, and that is the King of Kings. That we know that we will make it, we will endure, we will be able to remain faithful, able to know that He alone is worth following, because we know that He alone keeps His promises.